I invite you to stand as we come to our sermon text this morning, as we continue to look at the book of Acts, uh, beginning uh, this morning at verse 26 of chapter 9. Again, let us stand as we read the Word of God. Again, beginning there at verse 26 through verse 31. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and they declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was going with him at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as you've given to us these words on this day, God, we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you will apply these words under our hearts and that we might live lives of understanding and of grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. One of the interesting things that Luke does in this passage is that he contrasts two different words. This passage begins with fear and it ends with fear. It begins with intercession and it ends with intercession. Now the word fear, of course, is one that we have been taught to kind of do away with. You know, that we're not supposed to kind of walk in our fears. You know, that we're not anymore to be afraid of God. You know, there's a popular idea out there that you know, fear is what the people in the Old Testament had of God. And now, because Jesus had come, has come, uh, that there is no more fear in the life of the Christian. And that we live in a, a lightness, a, a hope, and a glory. You know, that, we, that this fear we have of God has been taken away. But what we see in this passage is there's different uh, kinds of fear. You know, the men at the beginning of this passage are afraid of Saul. And of course, as we know, that fear is illegitimate. That fear is ignorant. You know, they have no reason to fear Saul. You know, he has been engaged in the labor of the preaching of the gospel. Now, let's take a moment again not to be too harsh on the disciples. Again, it's easy for us when we read in the Bible of men and women acting badly uh, that we can kind of look at them and scoff and kind of shake our our head and wonder how they could be uh, so uh, dumb. But of course, if we look at our own hearts, again, we can see that same dimness from time to time. But again, think about these particular disciples. What have they heard of Saul? Well, it tells us here. They, they have heard that Saul 
was killing Christians, that he was arresting believers, men and women, you know, busting into their homes. You know, what, what can they take from a testimony of conversion? Maybe Saul is a double agent. You know, maybe this is a ruse to gain entrance into the inner sanctum of the disciples and the apostles. But what do we see here? We see Barnabas interceding on the behalf of Saul. Again, we see in the witness of this, again, this change of this irrational fear of this man Saul who means them no harm to a testimony of the fear that they have of the Lord. In in verse 31. Again, what's the difference here between that fear, that irrational fear of Saul and the fear that is commended that they have of the Lord? And the difference here is a fear of knowledge, a fear of understanding, a fear of which understands the nature of their relationship with the God of the created order and the God who has interceded on their behalf through His Son, Jesus Christ. This fear is the kind of healthy fear that believers are to have of the Father. That we are to walk circumspectly. That we are to walk in the knowledge that God is God. That He is a God of justice. That He is a God of strength and of power. And this fear is a fear of love unto God Himself. And again, we don't usually use fear in that way. And like I said, fear is almost always used in a negative sense. Not only in our culture, but in our own understandings. And again, it's important for us to kind of reclaim biblical fear. Again, what does it mean to be afraid of the Lord? It means to understand that we have been bought with a price. That we are owned by the Lord. And that because we are owned by the Lord, we are to live in accordance with His law. And that we are to understand that God, again, is this self-same God. That's one of the reasons in the book of Exodus, as the people are getting ready to go into the promised land, the first time, before they are let down by the spies, as they go to Mount Sinai to receive the law, that in chapter 19, what do they see on the mountain? You know, they see thunderings, they see lightnings, they see earthquakes, they see the, the, the reality around them uh, filled uh, with uh, these uh, scary images. And the, the, the purpose of that is not to strike fear in that sense that we talked about earlier, an ignorant fear, a fear of things that aren't actually there to harm you but a type of fear that understands whom we are dealing with. That's one of the the issues that many times can creep into our lives is a a kind of comfortableness with God where we kind of treat Him as a a kind of a a heavenly grandfather who's kind of there to give us Werther's Originals and to kind of give us these kind of sweets and things like this. But it's worthwhile to remember again that we are dealing with the God of heaven and of earth. 
You know, that we are dealing with this God who has created this world out of nothing. And that we are to have a healthy fear of the Lord our God. It's one of the things that spurs us to obedience to His Word. And that's why it's used in the way it is here in verse 31. Again, they're walking in the fear of the Lord. Again, why is Paul speaking so boldly for the Gospel? Because again, he understands the nature of what has happened to him. Again, when we think of the cross at Calvary, what do we look at? We see the divine wrath of God the Father being poured out upon God the Son. And we see that wrath being poured out upon Him for our sins. And that's one of, again, one of the problems we can, can come to in our walk with Christ is, is we can forget about what exactly has taken place in order that we are redeemed sinners. That the God of heaven and earth has put to death His own Son for our sin. And because of that glorious act, we can now be called sons and daughters of the living God. Again, that's why we see Paul here preaching with boldness. Because again, he understands the nature of what's happened to him in this similar way. Again, going back to Exodus 19, when, when the people see the lightnings and the thunders, they are duly afraid. And what does Moses hear as he ascends the mountain at the beginning of, of Exodus 20? And he tells Moses there that they are to be obedient to the Ten Commandments. Why? Because God had delivered them out of Egypt. And what had happened in the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt? Well, remember, after God had opened the Red Sea, what happened to Pharaoh's army? And again, we, we, we need to kind of be reminded of these things sometimes. That, that thousands of Egyptians perished in the Red Sea so that the people of God could be delivered from their enemies. You know, and these Egyptians were real people. Again, it, it, it's, it's, it's important for us, again, to kind of step back and remember that the events of the Bible actually happened. You know, we can kind of take the stories of the Bible and, and kind of mythologize them. Almost treat them like we do the stories of Hercules and, and of, you know, the Iliad and, and all those things that happened in the way past. Or, in the, those cases, didn't actually happen. And kind of use them as kind of moral tales. Uh, to kind of help our children behave or to uh, you know, help us kind of understand you know, kind of things in the way Aesop's fables do. But again, these, these Egyptians had families. These Egyptian soldiers uh, were real people who had, been, who, who had died attempting to bring the Israelites back into slavery. And so as they're standing there at the base of the mountain, as they're seeing the thunderings and the lightnings, and as God is reminding Moses that they have been redeemed from Egypt, that's one of the things that God is impressing upon them. That our God is not a God to be trifled with. That our God is this God of judgment. And again, that we have had the intercession of God the Son so that we might be a new creatures in Him. And again, that's what the fear of the Lord means here in verse 31. It's, it's understanding that we have been called as these new creatures 
to be obedient to the law of God, and that we are to be obedient to the law of God in the knowledge of who our God is. But again, that's not the kind of fear that we see at the beginning of this passage. Again, our fear of God is not irrational. Our fear of God is not the kind of fear that we have when we go to somewhere that we don't know anything about. You know, when uh, we were up in West Virginia a couple, three weeks ago, we went into Oregon Cave, which is one of my favorite places to go in the world. And Oregon Cave is a privately owned uh, cave. And it has been for 150 years. And as anything that is privately owned, it's not exactly uh, in keeping with most of the OSHA uh, standards and uh, things that state parks and national parks have to follow. And as you're going into the cave, if you've never been there before, it can fill you with a little bit of dread. You know, especially as you're walking down into the cave on this, uh, this kind of creaking uh, you know, uh, walkway that I'm most assured probably hasn't been fixed since I went there when I was Owen's age. And as you're walking down this thing and as it's creaking and as it's going, one of the things that you have to keep reminding yourself is that, well, this hasn't collapsed before. And of course, as you're telling yourself that, you're, you're also telling yourself that just because it hasn't collapsed before doesn't mean it won't collapse today. And as, as you're walking down again, as you're, you're dealing with that fear, again, that's, an, that's a fear of a lack of knowledge. You know, a, a lack of understanding if the guy happened to tighten the bolts that morning. You know, and as we think about that, again, that's the kind of fear that we see here with the disciples. Again, they don't know what to think of this man, Saul. And they know what they've heard. They know what they've seen. And that's what they're basing their ideas on. But Barnabas here, we see him in verse 27. He, he, he took him and brought him to the apostles. Now notice here the change. Uh, you know, the disciples are afraid. And so Barnabas takes them to the apostles. And who are the apostles, right? They're the twelve you know, uh, with Matthias added in, uh, that have uh, been uh, you know, kind of the center, the, the nerve center, as it were, of the early church. And he takes them to them and, and says, look, this man, Saul, what's happened to him? He took them in, brought them to the disciples, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Now notice what's going on here. Barnabas isn't just saying, well, he told me this. Because again, you know, any double agent can say whatever he wants to say. But what is it that's important about what Barnabas notes here? He notes that he has preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. Again, his, his faith is shown by his works. His faith is shown by his obedience to the command that God had given to his people. And it's important again to notice the word that's used there that he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Again, that's not Luke telling us that, 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 that Saul preached with a loud voice. Now, of course, everybody back then preached with a loud voice because you didn't have you know, amplification. And again, some of us may not need the amplification we have today, but it's necessary, again, in large crowds. And as we think about this, this boldness is of a man who understands and who lives the gospel that he's proclaiming. 
And this is what it means there to walk in the fear of the Lord. Again, to understand that our God has saved us from our sins, that our God has called us to a life of obedience unto His Word. And that's one of the things that, the, that, that James will get to in his epistle. You know, his famous line there that faith without works is dead. This is the kind of thing it's talking about. Again, when we live in a comfortable age, when we live in an age where there really isn't much danger in saying you believe in Jesus, you know, how do we know whether or not your confession of faith is genuine? Well, how does the Bible tell us to show that that confession is true? And in the same way as it says there in the book of James. It's the same way that Jesus in John 14 tells us. The same way John will later tell us in his first letter. Again, you will know them by their fruits. You will know them by how they uh, take upon the law of God. Is the law of God a burden? And what does Paul say in, in Romans chapter 7? Oh, the law is very good. The law is a blessing unto us. The law is a good thing for the believer. Now, not to get kind of in, in, into the weeds here, but again, it's important to understand the role of the law in the work of the gospel. You know, kind of the way we talk about this and the way that our catechism talks about it is that there are three uses of the law. The first use is to convict, convict us of our sins. You know, the law, when we look upon it, it reminds us of our failure. It reminds us of our disobedience. Again, it's what Paul says in Romans 7. Again, when he looks upon the law, what does he do? He dies. And again, what does he mean there? It doesn't mean he literally dies every time he reads the law. But he is convicted when he reads the law. Again, when he reads the Ten Commandments, he is reminded how he has put the things of this life before the living and the true God. He, 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 he looks upon the second commandment and he, he, he thinks about how he has made an idol and a God of his own choosing rather than uh, seeing the God of the Scriptures as the true and living God. And again, on and down the line. Again, the, the way in which the law is, is of still use to the believer is again in what we call the third use of the law. You know, the third use of the law, when the Christian looks at the, belief, at the law, what does he see? Again, not only does the law continue to convict us, but the law is the standard of life. And when we think about that, that the law is the standard of life, you know, that's the way in which we show forth our faith and the fruits of our faith. It's through the way that we understand, the way we know, and the way that we love. The law of God. And Paul in the book of, Gal in the book of Galatians uh, will, will make this clear to the Judaizers. Remember the Judaizers had come into the church and they were teaching uh, the people that to get to heaven, you had to not only believe that Jesus was the Son of God, but that you had to keep the Old Testament ceremonial law. And that if you did not do both of those, then you were not a Christian. And Paul, in dismantling the arguments of uh, the Judaizers, is always very careful to say, you know, yes, the ceremonial law has passed away. Yes, no longer do we have to you know, wear clothing that is not mixed fabric. Or yes, you can now eat shellfish. You know, but you are to understand again that those laws 
You know, we're not kind of arbitrarily given to the church. But that when we look back to the ceremonial law, for example, we are to see the principle of God's uh, uh, purpose in that. Again, what, do we, what, what is the purpose of not eating shellfish? Now, again, for most of us, shellfish is a treat. You know, it's a wonderful thing. You know, why would God keep something that He made from us? And what was the purpose of that? Again, it was to show the people of Israel that they were different from the world. That they were separated from the world around them. Likewise, why was it in uh, the book of Ezra, for example, when the, uh, the, they're returning back from exile, that Ezra makes them divorce all of the pagan wives that they had been married to? And when we hear that and we think about it, it seems like an odd thing for God to command the Israelites to do. But again, the purpose of that was to separate themselves from the wickedness that they had engaged in in Persia and in the land of Babylon. And so when we think about the law, again, as we think about the nature of the law in the light of the gospel of Christ, again, we think about the wisdom of God. An understanding that God is smarter than we are. And again, that's one of the most difficult things, of course, in the Christian life. Is to humble ourselves before the Lord our God. It's difficult for us to, to look at the world around us and say, Well, God, would you really not have me do this? You know, it doesn't seem like there's any harm to it. You know, it, it it's not hurting anyone. But is that the standard of our obedience to the law of God? You know, the standard of our obedience is reading the law, seeing what God says how Christians should behave, and again, humbling ourselves and understanding that God is the God of the universe. And that the law of God is a reflection of God's own character. And what's one of the things that Jesus tells us that we are to do? We are to die to self, and live unto Him. And that's how we do that. Can we put to death the old man within us? We, we put to death uh, that temptation of Satan that's always uh, around our ears saying, hath God really said? You know, is this really true? Again, that's that kind of irrational fear that the disciples have at the beginning of this passage. Again, th- th- this, th- this lack of trust in the Word of the living and true God. And so brothers and sisters, as we look at this passage and we see the fear of God and the the difference between the irrational fear of the world, again, we we think about the, the, the rational fear that we have of the Lord our God. Of the love that we have for Him. And again, the love that we have for the whole counsel of God. And the Apostle Paul later on in the book of Acts in Acts 20 or Acts 17 as he's leaving the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the Ephesian elders. What does he say to them? He says to them that he is thankful that he has not failed to teach them the whole counsel of God. And what do you think he means by that? The whole counsel of God. Well, he tells us that. He says to the Ephesian elders that he has told them everything that the Bible has to say. And that the Bible from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22 is the entire uh, testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so we are not to kind of take the Old Testament law and kind of shove it to the back and say, well, we live in the New Testament age and we're only supposed to say, do what the New Testament says. Again, if these men are walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, well, what are they walking in fear of? What are they being comforted by? But by the law of God, but by the prophets and by the Psalms. And so this witness we have in this passage of what it looks like to be an honest-to-goodness Christian is one who's not in fear of what this world can do unto us. Because again, what else happens to Paul in this passage? You know, he had just escaped from Damascus. You know, he had escaped through the hole in the wall. Why? Because the Jews in Damascus wanted to kill him. And what happens to Paul in this passage? As he's disputing with the Hellenists, you know, that is the, 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 the Jews from the diaspora, from the empire, what do the Jews want to do here? What are the Hellenists trying to do? What does it say? The Hellenists are attempting to kill him. Now, why is Paul not afraid to die? Why is he not afraid to have his body destroyed for the Lord? Because he understands that he has no fear of them. What power do they have over him? What power do they have over his soul? And what does Jesus say in the Gospel of Matthew? Do not be afraid of him who can kill the body, but be afraid of him who can kill body and soul. And again, who alone has the power to do that? Only the Lord our God has that power. And so to be in fear of the Lord and the knowledge of the Lord is a sure knowledge that no matter what this world says, does, or threatens to you, that you know the reality of the situation. You know that just as the Apostle Paul, the Lord Jesus, has appeared unto you, that the Holy Spirit has dwelt in your heart. You have the assurance of what we hear in 1 John, that the Lord Jesus is your advocate with the Father. That the Lord Jesus is the one who has claimed your soul, has claimed your body. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is, is a perfect example of this. Again, as, it, as it begins, again, what are we to rest and trust and have our hope in? That we belong, body and soul, to the Lord our God. Again, this is the spur of our obedience unto God. Understanding that we are not our own. That we are not uh, individuals kind of wandering around in the wilderness. But that we are those who have entered the promised land. We are those who have uh, this land flowing with milk and honey. Remember how uh, Caleb and Joshua had described that land that the, the, the grapes were bigger than men's heads. And that's what we have in the Lord our God. So why is it that so often in our life we go after uh, the things of Egypt and want to go back into slavery in Egypt? Look back unto our former manner of life in kind of a wistful way and wish that we could live a life of sin, a, a life of, uh, of fleshly lust, a life uh, uh, that is satisfied with those things that are passing away. And this is the danger, of course, uh, of listening to uh, the words of Satan who is wandering around the earth looking to whom he can devour. 
You know, when we hear the words in the closing here that they walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that they were multiplied. And why are they being multiplied? Because they're being obedient to the Lord our God. Again, is God going to bless any group of believers who are walking in disobedience to the Lord? Is God going to bless any church of the Lord Jesus Christ which is unsure of the left or of the right? Remember what the Lord Jesus says to the church at Laodicea who are neither hot nor cold. What is He going to do to them? It says there He's going to spew them out of His mouth. Again, that's an arresting image to think of that. Again, the, 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 the vision there. But what is the knowledge that we have? The knowledge that we have is that because we walk in the fear of the Lord, that we are comforted by the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus told the disciples in John 14, 15, and 16. He was going away. And then He was going to send a comforter unto them. And how was this comforter going to come? Because Jesus was going to go to the cross at Calvary. Jesus was going to intercede on their behalf. Again, when we see the vision here of Barnabas interceding for Paul, again, it's something that again speaks to us once more about the nature of the Gospel. That our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, again, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but humbled Himself to come in the form of a human being who lived a perfect life, and who died that death on the cross, again sang in the garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but thy will be done. In walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, Jesus knew going to the cross that His Father was not going to forsake Him. He knew that God was not going to forsake Him as He quotes there from Psalm 22, saying, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And again, when he does that, he's not saying that God has forsaken him, but you go and you look at Psalm 22, and what is it a constant reminder of? How God had interceded on behalf of His people from generation to generation. Jesus is comforting Himself with the words of Scripture, knowing that if His Father speaks, it will happen. Brothers and sisters, as we again go out into a world that's denied Christ crucified, and this understanding, this hope, is to be the fruit of our lives. This obedience that we are to give to God because we are in fear of Him is to be a testimony to the world around us. That we are to live bold lives in the face of unbelief. Knowing that we are showing forth the witness of our faith unto this unbelieving world. Showing that we trust not in the whims and the ever-changing culture, but in the sure word of the living and the true God. And brothers and sisters, let us go walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Amen.